You are listening to Onward with William McCarthy, live from Sardinia. Friends, Romans, countrymen, can you hear the cicadas? Can you hear the wind rustling through the vineyards? Can you hear the olive trees? I certainly can. It sounds like a goddamn lagoon out there. I'm staying in a... um, It's like a, a... I guess it's an inn. It's like a vineyard inn. I'm in the north part of the island of Sardinia. Um, I am, I'm going to check. I'm not making this up, but I'm in a town called Fertilia, which for some reason makes me think of fertility, but the end of it reminds me of genitalia. So it's just Fertilia. And I'm not trying to sound like a meathead American making jokes about everything, but it's called Fertilia, which also reminds me of Reptilia, the Strokes song. Strokes, Fertility, Genitalia. Great. It's great to uh, see that I'm really growing forward as a human being since my teen years. Anyways, I'm sitting here and there's owls, there's crickets, sounds like cicadas out there, and I'm in in Sardinia. Now, I was just in the town of Fertilia. It's hard to call this a village. It's hard to call it a city. It's something along the water. And it's not unlike like what Lebanon or Tunisia looks like. It's a lot of like white sort of stucco. Um, It's not a tall city, probably maximum three floor, uh, three stories. And it's got these short, kind of muscular, shrubby-type palm trees along the water. And it looks something like North Africa to me. Mm. Delicious. Sparkling water. Um, everywhere. Sparkling water. I, 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 I'm, I'm here with Brigitte, and we're in this beautiful Italian island, and it's not a joke. Coca-Cola is more expensive than wine here, which I think is a good thing. There's something that happens in America when you go to a restaurant, they add so much tax and so much surcharge to wine that it almost takes the fun out of it. You never really get a bottle of wine at your table because it's as much as the damn meal. The truth is, this wine's a beautiful thing, but it should like it should have an entry level kind of commoners' wine for people, like they do in freaking Europe. Here I am. What did we get, Bridget? We got a half liter tonight. Mm-hmm. We got a half liter, and it was like seven euro. No big deal. No one's a hot shot. No one's a show off. We just get a little wine with our carbonara here. Um, we sat in this kind of piazza. Not kind of, it was absolutely a piazza. And we realized that with my attention deficit challenges, it's really not a good idea to dine outside. 
<laughs> we started having a conversation. I just kept drifting off like, they, those, they've got to be Dutch. They've got to, look at how tall they are. They're Dutch. There's no doubt about it. Oh, look at him. He's wearing a scarf in the summertime. Oh, man. Wow. Do people still use moose? Wow, it looks like Cher in the 1980s. Just back on and on and on. So, um, I've been wearing this white linen jacket that I wore for this for the, for the wedding last week. And uh, I feel a little bit like Colonel Sanders from Kentucky Fried Chicken. Um, and maybe a little bit like Mark Twain, a.k.a. Samuel Clemens. Or even like a colonial British person, but except with that, without the beekeeper hat. Um, but I'm sitting there in this white jacket, and all I can think every time I take a bite of anything is, please do not spill on this jacket. Come on, Bill. And Bridget has actually broken it down for me. Like, you got to get the plate closer to you, bro. And every time you dip into something, like, you got to, like, shake it a couple times before you try to get it in your mouth. And I made it through and I was like, ha, 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 ha. I was doing my own little funky, in my mind, in my mind, I was doing this little funky like break dance, like ha, ha, I didn't spill on nothing. And there it was, Brigitte made a huge blunder. Balsamic vinegar, she got all brave <laughs> and just tipped it over and it didn't have like the little, <laughs> the little stopper thing. So it just came rushing out like a freaking waterfall. Splashed off her plate onto the placemat and made this big black lagoon. Like all near her. And I was sitting there like, ha ha ha. I'm sitting in my white linen jacket looking like Seal, the singer. And I'm pointing at the lagoon and I'm like, ha ha. And like, then I was a humanitarian about it. I, I grabbed a piece of like napkin. I ripped it in half like a gentleman. I handed her, I tailor made it perfectly. I tore it, it's perfect strip to put over the, the like long lagoon that had like gathered towards the bottom of her plate. She placed it on there. It looked like, it looks like she was staining wood or something with this napkin. It was disgusting. <laughs> and it just sat there. And then we started realizing that we were in sort of a tourist trap restaurant. The carbonara didn't have that much zing to it. Sat down, okay, she picked up on it. I was still hopeful. We thought there was tagliatelle, the cool homemade pasta, but no. We asked for olive oil and they gave us packets, like ketchup packets. <laughs> but with olive oil, I'm like, Jesus Christ. And the wine was a little bit thin too, man. So Brigitte's sitting there. I've offered her a torn piece of napkin. And basically, it looks like she's, like, varnished the placemat in front of her with all this balsamic vinegar. And we just sat there with my eyes darting around looking at people. And it was a, it was a powerful experience. Our waiter, his name was um, Pietro. And he looked like Jeffrey Dahmer, if you could imagine that. Bridget was saying that his eyeglass were, you, you know, the Jeffrey Dahmer glasses, not unlike... David Koresh of Waco, Texas, and the Waco, the Branch Davidian leader, that weird cult in the, was it the 80s or the 90s, in Waco, Texas, they had this weird, he had these weird glasses on it, and I get, the kind of glasses that you're not sure if it's like a hipster, or if they have a criminal record, or they're just like next level, like sometimes that's like a hip weird thing, like young pretty model girls were these terrible like televangelist 
glass frames from like the 80s and you're like, but it does look good on them. But that's always a model thing is they dress like I remember this in New York in the 2000s, like the pretty girls would dress in these ugly, like almost tunics that like a Ukrainian grandmother would wear and they'd pull it off. And I almost felt like it was a sport. Like, look, I'm so pretty. I can dress in like terrible 1980s moon boots in a muumu and like pull it off and like you're fucking spending money and you still look like shit anyways this dude I couldn't tell Italy's weird it's like some some people are so quaffed and beautiful that it doesn't matter what they wear and then you'll see an ugly guy wearing beautiful clothes and you're like but he lives with his mom and like how do you get money for that it's just startling and then there's the Catholicism, and everybody just seems like good, even though there's the dregs of mankind and the uh, societal problems that everyone has. Anyway, we're eating there, and the the you know the guy with the cult glasses comes up, the waiter, and he's like, um, "We're like, wow, today's um, the anniversary of D Day," and he's like, "Oh, see, si. <laughs> this piazza." This was destroyed by the Nazis. I'm like, Jesus Christ, they bombed Sardinia? What did poor Sardinia do to anybody? Except for like, grow grapes. Well, today is the anniversary of the invasion by the Allied forces at Normandy. And I'd like to take a moment, it's not really my norm to uh, acknowledge like military dates and uh, really speak out about this. I, I find like that's, that's a kind of a really popular thing in the heartland of America to like kind of root on the military and stuff. And I don't know. I get it, man. I live in this country. The people where I'm at right now are in their country. And I've been to Germany and that's, and those people, it's their country and then Britain and everybody has their own little world that they're in. And we don't necessarily have a connection to our governments or definitely certainly don't have any any say in our military's decisions. This sort of happens. So I have a lot of empathy on a day like this. Uh, oddly, on the flight over, Bergette and I were on the airplane and we watched a really beautiful film called The Book Thief. And it was... Um, basically talking about World War II, but it was about this really special um, young girl, a German girl, and her tribulations um, going through the war, and her family um, hid a Jewish, a young Jewish guy, and for a couple of years, I think. I think it was a popular, best-selling uh, book. Anyways, it was crazy to see it. It was crazy to see, like... Um, how powerless everyone was and is to ideology and um, politicking and megalomaniacs and uh, warmongering and the common people just go to their jobs and I don't know it's it was a little bit sad to see that said I'm also I've I've stumbled upon a really great series on that uh, HBO actually Chernobyl I think it's called the Chernobyl Diaries and it's about Chernobyl. And there was like a real like, you know, 
<clears throat> like an oath of silence and like a gag order. Those people really couldn't talk about what was going on. And it's really kind of incredible that this has gone on through history where people weren't out, allowed to really speak out against their government. So I think on a day like this where we have a remembrance, I also think it's important to have empathy for for Germany, man, and Austria and and the common people that couldn't do anything and felt powerless in the situation. Must have been awful. Uh, last summer, Bridget and I went to Dachau. Um, we went to the labor camp and the concentration camp of Dachau and visited that, and that was a absolutely um, jarring experience. And it's so funny, there's a parallel there. Um, oddly, I, sometimes I get kind of, I don't want to say obsessed, but I get wrapped up in like a new kind of uh, historical figure or a period. And I, I really, I get consumed by it. And so I'm on this vacation right now. I'm on this holiday. And I just started reading about Napoleon today. And because we're, we're sort of near um, where he was born, Corsica. Not far. I'd say a couple, oof, I'd say a couple hundred miles tops. So I was thinking about him. Him and I share a birthday. Um, and I was reading about him being banished to Elba and then ultimately off the coast of Africa where he ended up dying. I didn't know that he was only 51. And I didn't know that there was, people had long speculated that he had died of poisoning. But he, in fact, they figured out scientists that he was uh that he was actually he died of stomach cancer fascinating this guy came back from being in exile banished to this island he comes back he takes power he squanders many of the colonies of france he spends he bankrupts the country millions of people die He's a hero. He has multiple mistresses and children um, out of wedlock. And what a fascinating guy. And he was a militaristic genius. He also like, I think he, the, the like mathematics, it was something like he, he was a statesman and like he, that France changed the metric system in the time of his, he was like the first consul of France. Just a fascinating story, and I was just thinking about, but this guy, you know, he it was known that he cheated at cards. Like, he just couldn't lose. He was a, a, he was a megalomaniac, and, but a hero. Often, um, if opponents heard that Napoleon was on the battlefield, like, physically there, they would run away because he had such confidence and such a presence that it would frighten people, and he was... Um, he was a force, and, but like, like clearly, I heard, I heard Hitler be compared to Napoleon, and it was said that like comparing Hitler to Napoleon is a disservice to Napoleon because Napoleon actually did a lot for um, French law, and um, as a statesman and not just a militaristic genius. Anyways, fascinating story. Um, so. Brigitte's grandfather um, was in World War II. Um, his name was Vincent, a very special man, um, a very reverent man. 
And uh, my grandfather's big brother Paul died there. He died in France. And that's, those are two people just sitting in a hotel room with you right now that both had our, our parents' parents' generation was called to go over and protect the country. It's so strange, though. I think that when I think about war, I think about that that is such a tricky, it's such a tricky time period because you really, like, photography was so brilliant. Um, it was like the greatest generation, big band jazz. Um, it, it's, it's so easy to, like, uh, I don't want to say worship that time period, but, like, have such reverence for it because aesthetically it's completely bulletproof. Pilots are flying Mustangs. Um, people are driving around in beautiful cars. The films are elegant. Rita Hayworth. Um, we've got Mickey Rooney. Uh, it's a fascinating time, not only in America, but also overseas. Um, in Paris, in Berlin, in London. And uh, it's so easy because it's such a, like an elegant time. And when we think about the wars that followed afterwards, you know, you've got like, ugh, Korea, oh, such an ugly war. You've got Somalia, Vietnam. Um, and it doesn't seem to have this like kind of elegance, but I think that that's sort of a, a, a trick that our eyes are playing on us because it was a dirty war with bayonets, landmines, uh, phosphorus, bombs, flamethrowers, torture, rape so it's not this classy tom hanks production it was actually a fucking war where people were removed from their homes beaten heads shaved people were stood they were emaciated and stood in lines in the winter and marched off to to their death and i think that it's easy to get you know nationalistic and rah, 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 and our boys bring the boys back home and all that. But ultimately, war is really dirty, sad stuff. And I guess I'll spend the moment thinking of D-Day in respect for people who did what they thought was right for the times. But I have a tremendous amount of empathy, and I hope I don't sound too emo, but I have a tremendous empathy for everybody involved because everybody lost. And what did we win? What did we win? Um... I guess we, we restored uh, like some degree of safety back to a country that was being, or to a continent that was being brutalized by an ideology. Okay, I guess you have to answer the call. But it's just, it's strange. War is strange and it's really sad. Um, so anyway, the piazza that we were in tonight I was looking at it thinking, what the hell did Sardinia do? I mean, I get Mussolini, but like this beautiful old town, and you just start thinking of like Notre Dame um, was burning early this year. It was, it was, that's what, it was Notre Dame, right? Notre Dame. Mm -hmm. Okay, sorry. I didn't want to screw that up and just carry on and not flag that. Okay, so it was burning and it's like this massive, like travesty. Oh my God, this is terrible. Um, the Ventura fires a couple of years ago burned, burned Malibu, burned several people's homes. And it's like this travesty, but this was happening all over the place. 
and it's so sad and, and it's such a loss because what would be there had, um, you know, I remember one time I was playing in a place called, God, it was in, it was in the Netherlands, Nijmegen. And Nijmegen was this beautiful place. I had no idea where I was. I was playing with Augustines and I'm playing there. And they're like, yeah, and the Dutch people are like, yes, it is unfortunate what happened here. And I'm like, I don't understand what happened. And they're like, well, a lot of the pilots from Britain and America thought it was Berlin. And so they bombed it, thinking it was Berlin. The pilots had bad coordinates and they bombed this city that was not Berlin. And 800 people died. That's a big time, whoops, sorry. So D-Day, I'm feeling you. It's sad um, that someone in my family passed away. It's sad. Anyway, moving on. So it hasn't been an easy time. I wrote something on my Patreon recently and a post Okay, so moving on to more cheery news. It's not been an easy week for me, man. I'm not going to lie. Um, I found out that Pledge Music, who I worked with, is under investigation for embezzlement and fraud. That they burned several musicians for tens of thousands of dollars, and they're not ever going to see their money again. In the same week... Um, it's coming to light that iTunes is stepping down and pulling the plug on iTunes. It's kind of unclear, but it seems like they're going to break down their technologies and assign them to like different, different roles in a different context. And that's scary because iTunes was sort of like the last, the last line of defense, I guess, for people to like actually purchase things song by song. So that's been very threatening. And then this, I, I would say a landmark Pitchfork article came out last Saturday talking about a projected windfall in the music business. And if anybody remembers back in 2016, at the end of 2016, and I think I started commenting on it in 2017, I was just saying, basically, Spotify is a really interesting topic here. Now, statistically... The numbers are showing that actually there's an upturn in the music business and that they're seeing um, gains and profits that we haven't seen since the late 90s. But the problem is, is that money that they're making is not trickling back to artists properly. So uh, we've got Spotify moving in, diversifying into podcasts and so on. And again, I'm not an expert, but I'm just trying to learn as I go here, just like anybody else, but it looks like there are profits, but it's just not making its way back. So we can safely say that album sales are really, really, really impaired. If iTunes goes away or it shifts heavily, it's all going to be streaming. And I was saying this in 2017. Well, if you like, say, Apricot Jam, and a lot of people liked Apricot Jam, and... I was the maker of Apricot Jam, and I looked down, and 5 million people on YouTube liked my Apricot Jam, and 2 million people on Spotify liked one specific Apricot Jam that I made out of three albums worth full of 10 jams per album. How would you feel if you didn't get paid for that? And it's strange that it's happening in like the, the, the clear light of day that like, everyone's sort of 
assuming that it's okay and that it's making it back to the artist, but I was I cited Spotify as the number one reason that Augustine's couldn't continue. And I use Spotify. It's lovely. It's a great service. And just like any other tech platform, um, Amazon, um, Uber, Airbnb, it affects the ecosystem that's always existed. Airbnb has affected small hotels and inns. Amazon has affected UPS and small businesses. Kindle has affected booksellers and so on. We can't cry in our suit because there's no going back. And does it matter if we're mindful? Does it matter if like a Gen Xer is mindful or a baby boomer is mindful or a millennial is mindful? Because there's still kids that are 16 that have never bought an album and never will. So the world's really changing. and It's really how much you want to look at it. But I will say something is being lost. And I don't mind it if at least it's talked about. But silence does equal death in many instances. And I think in a situation like this, artists don't really want to spoil the fact that they have a perception of cool. Let's take Interpol. Let's take Paul Banks, the singer of Interpol. He's seen wearing ties. He's publicly linked with Helena Christensen. His band wears three-piece suits. He wears sunglasses when he sings. He's been on television shows. That guy was king of cool in the 2000s. Does that guy really want to come out publicly and say that he's broke? Paul Banks does not want to come out and say that he's broke. Paul Banks is probably struggling. Everybody is. I guess Chance the Rapper is the largest selling independent hip-hop artist at the moment. But his sales are so far below. And that's the problem with the Spotify platform is that according to experts and label owners and so on, that, that the Spotify platform is great for people who have listeners in the millions. And it's a great tool, as is Instagram. Instagram is great for, for your Kardashians or so on that have 15, you know, 30, 50 million followers. But for the little guys, that's really who's getting left behind. I'm seeing it in the film, in the Rise film, as we're, get, we're dealing with the film world. I've put out a book, I'm seeing that. It's just, it's hard that you're really like a bullfighter. You're in the same arena fighting the same bulls as all these people that are very backed. And that's what makes it really difficult. Anyways, I don't want to paint that with a negative brush. What I will say is that perseverance is always going to be like central to any artist's career. Anybody, any creative's career, just persevering and overcoming. I will say, <clears throat> I, I did post basically my concerns. It's a double-edged sword because I live in Brooklyn, which once upon a time was working class. It's very affluent now. And my neighborhood's become very affluent. I've been there for, I've been connected to that neighborhood. Eric lives in that neighborhood. I've been there since for 18 years. And I'm going to have to leave. And I'm not really quite sure where to go. I have to face up to this as, as I have to face up to music. So if you, if you face up to your, like, your calling and the thing that you're known for in life that you've had success with, and then you also face up to the place you live. You're basically facing up to much of your identity, which is sort of in flux. And I'm trying to be really like brave and have a brave face about it. But I'm, 
I'm pretty worried because pledge music was supposed to be sort of like for the people. And in, in the words embezzlement and fraud are like not what you ever want to hear associated with a platform that you personally have used and that is supposed to uh, have protected artists and help them get their, um, get their projects on their way um, to getting them to people who are fans. And on a larger level, of course, what we already covered, Spotify and the state of affairs. If anyone wants to read that, it was a last Saturday. I don't have the date on me, so it's the 6th and it's Thursday. So it was just a few, you know, it wasn't five days ago. Have a look, Pitchfork. I think it's something about what artists really make or something like that. Anyways, for people on Patreon who this podcast is for, Zenden, thank you. I appreciate your your ongoing support, and I'm really excited. Um, as I'm sitting here, Eric has been sending me new mixes, so and they're with Rob. <laughs> so essentially, I'm getting Augustine's tracks through my uh, phone while I'm on the Wi-Fi here, and it makes me really happy that um, we might have taken different aliases and gone underground, but we're, our band is very much still collaborating and making beautiful music. So that all said, it gives me kind of like a revolutionary type of punk rock fist in the air, badass John Cusack stereo ghetto blaster above my head feeling, fuck yeah, my band's still making music even if it's in this kind of strange prism and fragmented. Guys, I don't know if you could hear the cicadas, but maybe I should get my ass to bed. I'm checking out of this hotel tomorrow. Thank you for your well-wishing, and thank you for being there for me. It's been a little bit of a funny wobble, but I'm going to be fine, and I'll recover. I'm no economist, but this just looks... You know what it is, man? I've been playing music since I was 12. I've been in bands since I was 21, and... This is like 20 years now of just doom and gloom. And I think that's what it is, is it's just fatigue. And I traveled through these towns in Sardinia or in the deep south. And I go through these places or Mexico and I hear people just talk about the economy and they feel so cursed. And that they end up having to like migrate away to get work. So I'm... I'm in Sardinia that's basically like a paradise in many ways and people have to like migrate away from what they love because to like make a living. And I really hope that, um, and in Mexico as well, I really hope that I don't have to migrate away from the arts because I think I belong here. And I've been here for a couple of decades and I, I think I've made my place, but you know, Again, what does the small bookstore do when the Kindle comes, comes into uh, the marketplace? It's scary. And what does a mom and pop shop do when Amazon can deliver quicker and for cheaper? The world's changing, people. I'm not giving up hope. I appreciate you guys tuning in. This isn't meant to like be sad. It's, it's meant to be real. And I'm sending my best from Sardinia. You've been listening to Onward with William McCarthy, live from Fertilia, Sardinia.
is dark and dusty. The road is kind of rough. And a good road is wider. Boys, it ain't far off. Trail of trouble. The roads of battles. Paths of victory. We shall walk. Feel